Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 17, Successes and Failures of Antony and Octavian. Last week, Antony and Octavian established their dominance over Rome, defeating Brutus and Cassius, narrowly avoiding civil war with each other, and calming Rome after negotiating with Sextus Pompey, there was peace in the Republic. Antony would start his affair with Cleopatra in the East, and returning to Rome, began a happy marriage with Octavian's sister, Octavia. Octavian himself fell madly in love with Livia, and she hastily divorced her husband so she could marry the young triumvir. Lepidus, the third triumvir, was left mostly benched in the province of Africa, no longer very relevant to Antony and Octavian. Antony and Octavian now prepared for war. Antony was going to invade Parthia, which was justified as revenge for their recent invasion of Syria, revenge for Crassus, and fulfilling Julius Caesar's dreams of conquest before he was assassinated. Octavian was going to war with Sextus Pompey, as their peace was evidently short-lived. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode is, the same as last week's, who is the most powerful politician in the Republic? As a content warning, there is mention of suicide this episode. Last episode, when Antony was in Italy negotiating with Sextus Pompey, he had left it to one of his generals in Syria to drive out the Parthian invaders from the province. Antony's general did so very successfully, so when Antony returned to the east, the stage was set for him to make a heroic counter-invasion. But first, he had to make sure the eastern provinces were stable. The eastern provinces were home to major battles between Caesar and Pompey and the triumvirs against Brutus and Cassius. Eastern rulers were loyal to whoever ruled the east, or else they would be replaced. Thus far, Antony's transition as leader in the east had gone well, but the Parthian invasion in Syria disrupted the peace. If Antony invaded Parthia, he needed to know resources would still be herded in and reinforcements could be marched from the eastern provinces behind him. That is why stable rulers like Cleopatra were so valuable to him. Octavian's conflict with Sextus Pompey was heating up because both claimed the other violated their peace deal. Octavian said Sextus Pompey resumed blockading and raiding Italy unprovoked, while Sextus argued Octavian didn't fully deliver on the peace deal and he wasn't given full authority of all the islands he was promised. One of Sextus's admirals betrayed him and swore allegiance to Octavian, giving Octavian control of the islands of Corsica and Sardinia. This only further enraged Sextus. To increase pressure on Octavian and Rome, Sextus actively resumed his starvation strategy, capturing ships that would have brought food to Rome. Public opinion again was turning on Octavian, who as a triumvir never had to worry about a meal, and even worse, had recently dressed as a god and celebrated lavishly at his scandalous wedding with Livia while the common Roman people were starving. This battle for supremacy would be fought at sea, so Octavian raised a navy to drown Sextus Pompey in the Mediterranean. Drowning it! Octavian was sorely beaten. Sextus Pompey's fleet defeated Octavian's inexperienced soldiers twice at sea, and Octavian's navy was further battered by storms. Octavian at one point was in grave danger, nearly alone at sea with only a handful of sailors with him. He would have made for easy prey had Sextus Pompey arrived. These first battles were a decisive defeat for Octavian, with half his fleet destroyed and riots in Rome. 
Octavian requested support from Antony. Antony sailed back to Italy, but Octavian was late to arrive. Antony, frustrated, went back east. They were able to schedule another time to meet in Italy, and it was decided that Sextus Pompey would be made a full-fledged war criminal, losing his legitimate governorship and spot in the Senate. The two also exchanged troops. Antony gave Octavian 120 warships to supplement his depleted navy, and Octavian promised his sister Octavia 1,000 veteran soldiers that her husband Antony could use, as well as at least two legions. To further secure their alliance, Antony's 10-year-old son was engaged to Octavian's 2-year-old daughter, and they also gave themselves another five years as triumvirs because they could. Antony left Octavian with the ships, but back east, the troops Octavian promised his brother-in-law failed to materialize. Antony went back to further prepare for war in the east. This time, the pregnant Octavia did not join him. Instead, he invited his girlfriend, Cleopatra. Politically, Antony confirmed that Cleopatra's grain would be coming with him into Parthia. Personally, Cleopatra took her young twins to meet their father. Antony recognized Alexander Helios and Cleopatra Selene as his children. This meant little to Rome, as Cleopatra and the children weren't Roman citizens. Antony and Cleopatra resumed their affair, and by the end of the winter, she was pregnant again. The East suitably stabilized, and Antony confident he would have supplies and reinforcements behind him, he was ready for his invasion of Parthia. The Parthians had been beaten back in Syria, and were now about to be defeated in their homeland. Antony was going to be on a level comparable to Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great for his victories. He would avenge Crassus and reclaim the eagles his legions lost. Eagles. He would have a great military victory over a foreign enemy instead of all these civil wars he was embroiled in, and he was going to be rich. This is me. This is how I went. Antony's army was massive and may have been up to 100,000 soldiers. Antony had never commanded a force this large before. The gigantic force moved slowly through the unknown Parthia, which is today parts of Turkey and Iran. Antony's gigantic army took with them large siege engines like battering rams and ballistas. They were also slowed down by their baggage train that kept their resources flowing, and such a large force needed a large baggage train. While some of Antony's legions were experienced, others were recruits. Against Antony was the Parthian king Phraates IV. Like Romans in the east, Phraates was a king of kings, with several client kings below him that depended on his favor for their rule. Phraates' main asset was his Parthian cavalry, and while they were formed up, they did not yet engage the Roman invaders. While Antony's forces marched slowly, he was getting deep in Parthian territory. He demanded that Crassus's eagles be returned and that any Roman prisoners be returned as well. Antony knew Phraates couldn't accept this as it would make him look weak, but he also wanted to make Phraates feel like this invasion wasn't going to be so immediately hostile. Antony's goal was to take the city of Freda in Medea. Freda housed the Medean royal family and treasury, which Antony could capture and use to force the Medean king to betray his superior king Phraates. However, taking the city would not be easy as King Phraates predicted Antony's plan and sent his troops to the city to defend it. Antony's giant army and baggage train were moving too slowly for his taste, so he took his most experienced troops to forge on ahead. 
he left two inexperienced legions in charge of defending the baggage train until they caught up. The force that Antony brought was still sizable, and he hoped he could terrify the Parthians into submission. He did not, and Antony began to lay siege to the city. However, Antony would never be able to fully take it until the rest of his men and resources showed up. While Antony was away, Parthian cavalry found his slow-moving baggage train that was ill-defended by inexperienced legions. The Parthian cavalry tore through Antony's legions and supplies, and Antony himself arrived to the rescue only to find corpses. His men were dead or taken prisoner, pack animals were slain, and siege engines were burned. Antony had now lost many resources and men and would not be able to take the city without the siege engines that were burned. Even foraging for food would be dangerous, as small groups of soldiers would be easily picked off by the Parthian cavalry. Antony requested his client king, Artavastes of Armenia, send more supplies, but they never came. Still, Antony had the majority of his army, which could still be enough to make for a successful invasion. If he had a decisive victory in open battle that crippled the Parthian cavalry, it could force King Phraates to negotiate for peace, and Antony could still come out on top. Antony left some of his army to keep sieging the city, and took a larger force foraging in the wilderness, hoping to provoke an attack by the Parthians. Parthian cavalry shadowed them for a while, and when it came too close, Antony attacked. It was successful, but only on a small scale. The cavalry were quickly able to retreat, and Antony killed less than a hundred cavalry. Antony returned to his army outside the city without the decisive victory he needed. Now they were all being picked off by Parthian cavalry. Antony tried to negotiate with King Phraates to return Crassus's eagles and prisoners, but King Phraates refused, saying if Antony left now, he would not be pursued. Antony knew he could not take the city, and Phraates was only increasing the pressure of the raids on him. Antony decided to retreat back to friendly territory. Antony's army was starving without resources on their march back, but if they went out to forage, the Parthian cavalry would easily pick off those men. Phraates' promised peace did not last. While they were at times able to kill and repel the cavalry, it was a nearly month-long journey through hostile territory. The arrows of the Parthians wounded many of Antony's men, further slowing down his progress out of Parthia. Antony tearfully visited his wounded men. The wounded told Antony he didn't need to worry because they trusted Antony's lead. Just like Julius Caesar, Antony had built himself a strong core of loyal men, and despite the disastrous invasion, they were still loyal to their commander. However, discipline broke down one night as soldiers started to plunder their rich officers' possessions, stealing from them and killing them. That night, Antony told one of his bodyguards he might need help to commit suicide. However, order was restored by morning, and the army kept marching for its own survival. After 27 days, Antony's tattered army made it out of Parthia. However, winter was just about to hit, and they had to keep marching into Armenia, which had the food and water Antony's army so desperately needed. Another 8,000 of Antony's men died on this march before finally reaching proper shelter. In total, Antony lost between 25,000 and 33,000 soldiers, a quarter to a third of his army. This was supposed to be Antony's crown jewel of achievement, and he failed in every sense, and had gotten tens of thousands of his own men killed. This is me. This is how I win.
While ostensibly he was taking revenge for Crassus and dreamed of reclaiming the lost eagles, Antony gave even more eagles to the Parthians. Eagle. His prestige had sunk and his self-worth was rocked. Antony summoned Cleopatra to help him recover. She brought food and clothes for his men and also money to pay them. But more than anything, Antony needed her affection. As Antony's greatest triumph turned into his greatest nightmare, Octavian warred against Sextus Pompey. Sextus had already beaten him twice, so Octavian spent the next year and a half preparing to best him. Octavian had help this time, his old friend, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. Agrippa was a longtime friend and was with him in the east when Caesar was assassinated. As Octavian rose in power, so did Agrippa, and Octavian found Agrippa was one of his greatest assets. Octavian trusted him with increasingly more important tasks, and Agrippa succeeded at every one. While Octavian was losing to Sextus in his first engagements at sea, Agrippa was putting down a rebellion in Gaul for Octavian. Lepidus also threw in his support to Octavian. United, the three set out to best the renegade Pompey. Sextus Pompey had also been gathering strength. Each side's navy now swelled to over 300 ships. From North Africa, Lepidus was able to invade the island of Sicily, which Sextus Pompey held. But Lepidus's reinforcements were destroyed at sea. At sea, Agrippa had victory at Cape Mile. However, Octavian lost a naval engagement at Tarominium. Again, he came close to death and was forced to flee to shore, and for a while was only attended by a single bodyguard. Agrippa and Octavian were able to keep sending troops to Lepidus on Sicily, and as many as 21 legions were systematically taking down Sextus's bases on the island. Sextus Pompey needed a decisive victory at sea. Sextus would face Agrippa at Nolichus. Octavian himself was suffering from illness or exhaustion and only roused to give Agrippa the order to attack. Not that Octavian really needed to tell Agrippa how to do his job. I have a plan. Attack. Agrippa was quickly finding his way as an admiral and defeated Sextus's navy, forcing Sextus to flee east with the few ships he had. Italy was saved, mostly by Agrippa in this case. However, Agrippa was a very modest friend to Octavian, and was quite possibly the greatest wingman in history, and never tried to make Octavian look weak. Octavian's propaganda played up his few successes as much as possible. Sextus Pompey met a violent end. While he may have hoped to ally himself with Antony in the east, when he discovered how badly bruised Antony was, Sextus raised his own legions to carve out new territory for himself. He was defeated in battle by one of Antony's generals and executed. Thus, Pompey Magnus's two sons were dead. Lepidus, relevant to Octavian for the first time in years, had largely felt ignored. It was 36 BCE, and for four years, Lepidus had only been left with the small province of Africa, while Octavian and Antony were living large in several provinces. On the island of Sicily, Lepidus found an opportunity to reclaim some power. One of Sextus's generals surrendered his army to Lepidus, whose army suddenly grew to 20 legions. To unite them, the new comrades engaged in some team-building activities. In this case, plundering the city of Masana. Lepidus, with his large army, wanted to make Sicily part of his African province. 
the 27-year-old Octavian was not gonna let this boomer walk all over him. Future's now, old man. Octavian walked into Lepidus's camp with just a few of his officers. Around him, Lepidus's entire army watched the young triumvir breeze by them. Most of them were strangers to him, and quite a few of them were recent enemies. Only a handful would have served under Julius Caesar. A javelin was launched at Octavian and only narrowly missed him, but he kept walking straight to the center of the camp. At the center of the camp, Octavian addressed the soldiers, urging them to leave Lepidus and join him. He grabbed a legionary eagle, eagle and marched out of the camp with it. A few soldiers followed, but most were unsure what to do. Outside of the camp, more of Octavian's army arrived, which put more pressure on the men to decide their loyalty. Furthermore, Lepidus failed to do anything nearly as inspiring or intimidating as the young and bold Caesar. Uninspired by Lepidus's leadership, his army left him for Octavian. There is nothing for Lepidus to do except surrender. Lepidus, on the verge of finally taking charge of something for himself, lost everything. Do you feel in charge? Octavian stripped Lepidus of his powers as a triumvir and even his lowly African province. I gotta get security! I want this man out of my sight right here! Get him out of here! He's got no place in here! Get rid of him, okay? However, Octavian did leave Lepidus with his life. During the proscriptions, Octavian, Antony, and even Lepidus had killed a lot of men. Yet Octavian now offered mercy, as his adoptive father Julius Caesar once had. Lepidus also got to keep his title of Pontifex Maximus. But the title was nothing, and Lepidus was made totally irrelevant in Roman politics for the rest of history. Lepidus was put under house arrest in a nice home in the Italian countryside. It was a much more peaceful fate than most of Octavian's other enemies at this point. About two decades later, Lepidus would die peacefully as an old man at 76 years old. He had lived a quiet life and didn't ruffle anyone's feathers. Look, I I'm not proud to share this, but the truth is I just kept crawling and it kept working. Reunited with Cleopatra, Antony tried to put the 2,000-mile nightmare behind him. He went back to feasting and partying with his beautiful queen, but the trauma and death he brought upon his men and his utter failure could not have lingered far from his mind. Antony leaned into his drinking habits and may have even been suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. As Octavian's victory was being celebrated in Rome, Antony's messengers tried to mask the magnitude of his failure, but the full truth would be realized soon enough. Antony was in Alexandria with Cleopatra when his wife Octavia started sailing to Athens to meet him. Octavia brought with her money, supplies, and pack animals to supplement Antony. Octavian also returned 70 of Antony's 120 warships the rest having been sunk. However, the legions that Octavian had promised Antony so long ago did not sail with his sister. This was probably an intentional move by Octavian. If Antony met his wife and accepted her gifts, then Octavian would see his debt restored to him. However, if Antony sent Octavia away, his reputation would take a hit. Did you miss me? Don't you love me? It would be easy to gin up propaganda that Antony turned away his dutiful Roman wife, seduced by a foreign queen. Antony ultimately accepted Octavia's gifts and told her to return to Rome. 
he did not need her. He was surely frustrated that Octavian still did not give him all he had promised, but did not raise the issue immediately. Now look at my Really? Oh, so that's how you're gonna play it. You're gonna do this? Okay, fine. That's all I needed. That's all I needed for him to do that, and it, it became personal with me. But Octavian made no move on Antony for sending his sister home, as he was embroiled in more wars. This time, it was no civil war, but war on hostile Illyrian and Dacian tribes. Octavian's war was a scaled-down version of Antony's invasion of Parthia. This campaign was also one that Caesar had planned before he was assassinated. Rome needed to avenge, the Romans recently killed in the area, and most of all, it was a chance for Octavian to win a victory in his own right. This is me. This is how I win. In every previous war, Octavian had killed a lot of Romans in victory and or looked very sick or weak in victory. From 35 to 33 BCE, Octavian tried to make himself look as heroic as possible, a disciplined commander like the Romans of old. He led a charge across a bridge into an enemy city, followed by Agrippa, and then followed by the rest of his army. Like any good war hero, Octavian sustained a few injuries, but lived to tell the tale. He also restored order among his men by decimating a dishonored cohort who panicked in a nighttime attack. You can breathe. You can blink. You can cry. You're all gonna be doing that. In 33 BCE, a 30-year-old Octavian returned to Rome with victory and riches. The Senate awarded him a triumph, but Octavian decided to celebrate it at a later date. He used the captured wealth to start building projects in Rome as any generous Roman commander would. Building projects allowed famous Romans to forever leave their mark on the city, increased Rome's amenities, and boosted the economy as laborers and suppliers were being paid. Antony and Octavian also allowed their loyal generals to celebrate triumphs over foreign enemies and to build up Rome as well. Asinius Polio built up a library in Rome, Statilius Taurus built Rome its first amphitheater, and Gaius Sassius built Rome a temple of Apollo. These victories over foreign enemies brought even greater optimism to Rome that things were returning to normal. With prosperity returning to Rome, Roman public opinion began to turn in Octavian's favor. At various points in his career, Octavian and his associates, but mostly Octavian, have been viewed as violent, sadistic, sickly, corrupt, and or incompetent. However, the people began to appreciate Octavian as he brought peace and prosperity. We were bad, but now we're good. Octavian used his own wealth to work on the building project Caesar envisioned, but was never able to complete because, you know, he was murdered. This included building a new Senate House and Temple of Venus. Agrippa took on the role as Aedile and set about improving Rome's water supply. He created a new aqueduct, built 130 new water towers, and improved Rome's sewer system. As Aedile, in charge of Rome's entertainment as Caesar once was, he treated the city to 59 days of games and arranged for 170 days of free public bathing as well as free barbers. Sextus Pompey was three years dead, and peace had settled in Italy. Everyone's happiness improved as their quality of life improved, provided primarily by Octavian. The young warlord had used violence to attain his position, but now acted as peacekeeper. 
This week, the careers of Octavian and Antony took very different paths. Octavian was first defeated by Sextus Pompey before rebuilding his navy with Agrippa and finally achieving victory over Sextus. When Lepidus tried to take some power back, Octavian stole his legions from him, expelled Lepidus from the Triumvirate, but allowed him to live. Octavian was not the most heroic commander in his war with Sextus Pompey, so won himself a clean victory over the foreign Illyrians and Dacians, victory not tainted by civil war. He used the spoils of war to start building projects in Rome that improved the lives of citizens and was aided by fellow successful Roman generals and his BFF Agrippa. Italy and Rome were stabilizing and lives were improving thanks to the actions of the benevolent warlord Octavian. This is me. This is how I went. In the east, Antony took a nosedive. He had a lot of hope riding on a successful Parthian invasion and was utterly crushed, achieving nothing and killing thousands of his own men. He returned to Cleopatra, trying to find some happiness in the world. What am I doing? I am blowing Dodge. I'm getting out of town. Whatever you call it, I am running away from my responsibilities. Arm feels good. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode was, who is the most powerful politician in the Republic? Go ahead and pause if you'd like to consider your answer. Sorry if you were banking on Lepidus. Whereas last week, I gave the edge to Antony, this week, Octavian and Antony's relationship and their power dynamic has drastically changed. Where once Antony was clearly the most dominant and strongest, his failures and Octavian's successes brought them a lot closer to the same level. For years, Antony's prestige and Octoritas took a major hit in Parthia and worsened as from the Roman perspective, he was wallowing in despair in Alexandria. Meanwhile, Octavian's Octoritas and successes only grew and with the help of his own propaganda, was becoming more celebrated by the Roman people. A buddy, a buddy of mine saw Octavian take his shirt off in the shower and he said, and he said that Octavian had an eight pack, that Octavian was shredded. Furthermore, as useless as Lepidus had been, he was now officially cast out. The true strength between Octavian and Antony was changing, and where it would ultimately rest, and what it would bring, was yet unseen. However, for as far as Antony had fallen, he was still in charge of the rich eastern provinces, and had Egypt totally allied to him with Cleopatra, and I am not personally confident that Octavian could be called decisively superior to Antony. It was a tight race. Whoever was stronger remained to be seen. But that shouldn't matter too much. I mean, they're triumvirs. They're on the same side, right? Right? Someone once told me time is a flat circle. If everything we've ever done or will do, we're going to do over and over and over again. Check out the show on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic podcast. Re-listen to favorite clips and share with friends and help them discover the show. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you. Hello, listeners. Death of the Roman Republic is ending soon. The series will conclude at chapter 20 on October 27th, 2020. However, the podcast feed won't be inactive, and I have a slew of one-off episodes I plan to release for the rest of 2020 and 2021. The first of these one-off episodes will be a Q&A. 
You can submit questions about producing the show, about Roman history, about myself, or about anything else you can think of. I have no idea how long this episode might be, but I'll try to answer as many appropriate questions as possible. You can tweet Q&A questions at the show at dotrrpod on Twitter, or email the show at dotrrpod at gmail.com, and I'll try to include your question and credit you with asking if you would like. So tweet or email the show if you have any questions for me, and I'll try my best to answer them. The Q&A episode will drop roughly around Halloween 2020, maybe the day before, maybe the day after. We'll see. A lot is up in the air in the world right now. Stay safe and have a lovely rest of your day. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you.